Mark chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. If you'll go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Um, while you're finding that chapter, I just want to say I'm very grateful for your prayers. I know for a fact there are many of you who pray for me on a regular basis, and I haven't thanked you enough. That means the world to me, to have your prayers lifted to heaven on my behalf. I, I am humbled by that. I'm humbled to be your pastor, and I want to be a good pastor to you. I'm in constant need of wisdom and discernment and patience and perseverance and all the things that only the Spirit can give me. So thank you for your prayers. Just continue to keep me in your prayers if you would. I just want to shepherd this flock to the best of my ability and for God's glory uh, so that we all can grow up into maturity in the Christian faith and just carry out the work of the ministry that he's given us all to do. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> so today we're up to Mark 4, 35 to 41. This is when Jesus calms a storm. Let's read it now. This is the word of the living and true God. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's the word of the Lord. As we've been uh, going through this passage, we've seen that most of this chapter, Mark 4, has been about what? It's been about the kingdom of God. And here at the end of chapter 4, we get that theme again, but from a slightly different angle. There's something that all kingdoms have. Kingdoms have kings, don't they? Kingdoms have kings, and here just Mark, this is Mark flipping on the spotlight, so to speak, and pointing it right at Jesus and saying, behold the king. This scene is meant to put us in awe of Jesus, and it's my prayer that God will do that today through his word as we look at this, that we can just be awestruck before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? <clears throat> Let's just paraphrase these events right here that we, that we just read about, just to solidify them in our minds, okay? After Jesus had finished speaking to the crowds, it's now evening, so it's getting dark. And he tells his disciples, Let's go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We'll see, by the way, when we get into chapter 5, that he had some things that he wanted to do on the other side. And so in this increasing darkness, they just push off into deeper waters, and they cross the roughly six miles of water to reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And while they're headed across, Jesus just falls asleep in the back of the boat. Which, by the way, that was the place where the pilot of the boat would sit. No coincidence there, right? 
Who's the captain of this ship anyways? We know. But as they're, they're trying to cross, the wind starts whistling, starts picking up. And the thing about wind, as you know, out on the water is that it produces waves. And so the wind picks up, the waves get higher and higher until this boat is being tossed around like a toy boat in a bathtub. Water is pouring in over the side of the boat and it's starting to fill the boat up. That's not good, right? And we have to remember that um, several of these disciples in this boat were fishermen. They were seasoned veterans of the water. So these guys would have basically, uh, they would have basically spent their lives out on the water. They spent a lot of time out on the sea, and they were very familiar with this body of water too, the Sea of Galilee. This isn't some foreign body of water to them that's away from their home, that they don't have any experience with. This is their home turf. They knew how it worked, and they knew that the Sea of Galilee sat down very low in the earth, some 600 feet below sea level, actually, And they knew that the winds come rushing off those surrounding mountains and just whip down through on top of the Sea of Galilee. And it can happen without much warning and create a pretty wicked windstorm very quickly. That wasn't new to them. They were used to that. They'd seen it before. They'd probably been in it before, no doubt. But on this particular occasion, something was different. This storm was apparently, even to them, it was on another level. They, these seasoned veterans of the water, they began to fear for their lives. They thought they were going down. And so they urgently wake Jesus up, who is somehow sleeping through this whole thing. And they say to him, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die here? In other words, how in the world are you sleeping? This boat is about to sink and take us all to a watery grave. Don't you care what's happening to us? By the way, just for a moment, how ironic is it for them to ask him that question? Because the disciples, they, they said rash things. We know they weren't perfect men. They said rash things. They said foolish things. They didn't often understand what Jesus was doing. So none of us can look down our noses at them, right? Because we get in a panic too and we say things and think things about God that aren't true sometimes. But here we basically see them accusing Jesus of not caring because he was asleep in the storm. Yet later, and this is why I say it's ironic, later Jesus would be in a storm of his own in the Garden of Gethsemane, a spiritual storm, we might say, of massive proportions He was about to bear the weight of the wrath of God against sin. And he would ask his disciples to stay awake and just watch and pray with him. And what did they do? They fell asleep. Could he have asked them the same question on that occasion that they were asking him now? When he found them sleeping While they should have been praying, he could have said, don't you guys care about me? I told you my soul was deeply troubled to the point of death, and you guys can't even stay awake to pray with me for a little while? What kind of disciples are you? What kind of friends are you? Jesus, though, is so patient with them. He didn't disown them. Although they deserted him and even betrayed him, right? And that's how he treats us as well. 
He is so patient with us. With our weaknesses, with our failings, with our sins. He doesn't just let us go when we fail. He doesn't disown us. I'm done with you. He never says that. He doesn't forsake us. Praise the Lord. Because we deserve to be just discarded. But it's ironic that here they would ask him that question. Don't you care what's happening to us? The whole reason he's on earth is because he cares for you. He's come to save you. But when he hears their question and he sees the storm whipping around, what does he do? He rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. Literally in the Greek, it says, be muzzled. He tells the storm, be quiet. And right then, the wind ceases. And the waves stop churning and stop crashing. And the boat, of course, goes from rocking like a toy boat to just still. And Jesus says, why are you so fearful? Have you still no faith? Haven't you seen enough to trust me, is what he's saying? Have you forgotten everything that you've seen me do up to this point? Why are you so afraid? It says they were filled with great fear. And they asked the question, who is this man? (laughs) Even the wind listens to him. Even the sea obeys him. And that, as I said before, is the main point of the passage. This passage is here primarily to show us who we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus. I think I've shared this with you before, or maybe some of you before, but when my oldest two children, Micah and Hallie, were younger, you guys will remember this, I think, I don't think you were too little to to remember it, but I took them out on the back porch under a really bad storm one night. And the rain was pouring, and the thunder was really loud. And I said to them, why don't we see if we can calm this storm? You guys want to try? Want to give it a shot? They said, yeah, let's try it. So we all took our turn, yelling at the storm. Be still, storm. Stop, storm. And we even tried to use Jesus' word. Peace, be still, storm. And I'm here to tell you the storm did not listen (laughs) at all. In fact, some of our words probably got drowned out by the thunder we, we couldn't even hear each other yelling right next to one another about how long the, or how loud the thunder was. And the wind just kept howling, and the rain kept pouring. And so we demonstrated to each other and to ourselves that we were not the master of the wind, that we are totally powerless in that area to control weather, to control nature. But here's the thing, when Jesus spoke to the storm, something amazing happened. The wind listened, and the sea obeyed. Nature itself, creation itself, obeyed its master. The living word that spoke all nature into being from nothing, he made his voice heard again, and the wind says, I recognize that voice. That's my master. And it ceased. Let me encourage you with something right now, because this is very important. When you're reading your Bible, and you read any miracle of God, let it evoke all in your heart because that's the whole point of it being recorded there 
Don't speed past it. Don't uh, try to explain it away as some do with naturalistic explanations. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who actually experienced that miracle. And think about what that miracle teaches you about who God is or who Jesus is. These were not meaningless magic tricks. These were signs and wonders designed by God to show us, in this case, who Jesus is. They're meant to fill us with awe and worship. So goosebumps and gasps are appropriate when you read stuff like this. If, if we just speed by them when we're reading without giving them a whole lot of thought, we are missing the whole point. And I did that for too long in my life. I don't do that anymore. I try to slow down and take in the scene when I get to a miracle, especially of Jesus. And I try to just let the account of whatever miracle I'm reading about, let it lead me to doxology. You know that word, doxology? It means praise. So when you see a miracle in the scripture recorded for you, just stop and give God glory. Just stop right there and give him the praise. That's the point of it being there, to display his glory and his power and his majesty and so forth. Stop and think about what's happening. I mean, what makes us skip past things like this? Have you ever seen a person heal a paraplegic on the spot? One second they're paralyzed and the next they're perfectly well? Have you ever seen a man bring a dead person back from the dead just by touching them or speaking to them? Or have you seen a man, like today, who can command the wind and it obeys everything he said? We haven't seen anything like this man before. This is crazy, we might say in our slang. This is crazy. This is insane. It's amazing, really, to me that I, that we can sometimes stare at glory and just yawn. Yeah, I read that before. Flip the page. Let that prick your heart. Let it remind us we haven't arrived yet. There are things in the scriptures that we have not grasped, that we have not appreciated as we should yet. Our reaction to things like this should be similar to the disciples here. They asked in utter astonishment, who is this man? Even the sea obeys him. Even the wind listens to him. Do what? This was the king of glory. Let the accounts of his many miracles just fill your heart and mind with awe and worship. Now there is a lot we could say about a passage like this, but I just want to restrict myself to mainly one thing so that I can, by the help of the Spirit, Provoke all of our hearts to worship and awe of the Lord Jesus this morning. This is what I want to focus on. Jesus is Lord of all creation. Jesus is Lord of all creation. That's the answer to the title question. Who is this man? Answer, he's the Lord of all creation. In short, behold your king. This is the king. He can tell demons to leave, and they leave. He can touch people, and their sicknesses end. I mean, just, just think about that. I'm a medical person. I've worked in the medical field for about 13 years before being a, a full-time pastor, 
Think about what we know about biology and various areas of science. Think about the cells of our body and how intricate they are with all the little machines inside of each and every cell. It's astounding. And Jesus, just with a word, just saying something, or with a touch, can instantly fix millions of broken cells. Or he can correct strands of mutated DNA that was causing a person to suffer from a certain disease. Just instantly fixed. He can touch someone and and cancer cells and tumors just disappear on the spot. He can revive neurological tissue and regenerate a spinal cord. You name it, he can do it. That's what he was doing. These droves of people were coming to him, probably not even knowing what they had. Did they have some form of cancer? Did they have some disease that they weren't even aware of back in, in those days? Probably anything and everything, and Jesus healed them all. Nothing's too hard for him. What Jesus was doing would absolutely befuddle the brightest physicians of even our day. They'd have no explanation. None. I've never seen anything like this, they would say. And Jesus wasn't uh, giving people, he wasn't healing them with medicinal treatments, was he? This, this wasn't um, touching them and saying, now I've put you on the right track to healing. You'll be healed in a little while if you follow these instructions. Uh, he didn't give them medicine and, and tell them, if you take this twice a day, you'll be healed in about three weeks. They were fully and immediately healed on the spot. Boom, Healed. No doctor does that. No doctor can do that. And then here, we could go on and on, I know. But here, unlike anything we've seen yet in Mark, Jesus shows himself to be Lord even over inanimate substances of creation. He's Lord over wind and water. I sort of personified wind and water earlier when I just said in a, in a figure of speech way that they heard their master's voice and they obeyed. But again, that's just a figure of speech. We all know wind doesn't have ears and, and water doesn't have a brain with which to consider statements spoken to it. It doesn't listen or think. It's inanimate. It's lifeless. Yet Jesus can tell it whatever he wants it to do, and it obeys. Who is this but the king of everything? Let's consider here uh, just a few biblical facts about Jesus this morning that's related to him being the Lord of all creation. Okay, here's number one. He's Lord of all creation because he himself created everything. He created it. You say, hang on, I thought God, uh, meaning God the Father, created everything. Isn't that what uh, Genesis 1-1 means when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth? We got to remember who God is. God is a triune being. He's unlike any other thing or person that we know. Nothing has ever existed that is like God. There, is, there are no adequate analogies for him in this triunity. He is one God in essence, but has eternally existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are Trinitarians, and we are Trinitarians because of what the Scripture teaches about God. And in the act of creation, specifically, each person of the Godhead played an important role. God the Father was there, God the Son was there, and God the Spirit was there. 
And if we were to focus in on Jesus's role, we find the scriptures describing him, that is Jesus, as the word of God. Remember how God spoke everything into existence with his powerful word? He said, he said, let there be life. And God said, let there be life let the earth sprout vegetation and so forth. God said, God said, and it was just like he said. And the psalmist said, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 33, 9. And so it's interesting when we read about God speaking everything into existence, especially when you pair that up with how scripture calls Jesus the word. You know this scripture well, John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's Jesus. Colossians 1.16 gets even more specific about Jesus as creator. For by him, you can look back at that passage and it's referring to Jesus if you look at the previous verses. For by him, all things were created. That plain enough? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him. Wow. Hebrews 1.2 says, In these last days he, that's God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Or one more, 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, There's one Lord... Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You and I exist because of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but it's true. We only exist through him and we exist for him. Jesus is Lord of creation. And he didn't, got to be careful how we think here. He didn't acquire the skill of commanding the creation. It wasn't taught to him by someone else. And it's not a trick that he was able to learn. He can command the creation and it obeys him because he made it. He is the one who created everything. So Jesus created everything the next aspect of, the, uh, aspect of this that I want to hit on is Jesus upholds everything. So not only has Jesus made it, but he upholds it. In other words, he sustains creation. Colossians 1 is crystal clear on this point. We just read verse 16 a minute ago, but now look at verse 17 with me on the screen. And he is before all things, that's referring to Jesus, and in him, all things hold together. And the word that's translated into the English phrase hold together is a Greek word that means to endure or cohere or consist. And it even has the, the, the element of continuing. So what is that verse saying? Are you ready for this? is saying that the universe, the entire universe, is being constantly held together by whom? By Jesus. Everything in creation continues to exist and coheres and consists because of him. And sure, there are uh, various forces in creation that we can observe and we can learn about through scientific investigation. All that is wonderful. We, 
We can do that because God created a world that we can understand. But there's gravity. There's the strong nuclear force, which is the force that holds protons and neutrons together in all the atoms of the universe. There's the weak nuclear force, which has to do with the radioactive decay of elements. Some of you are familiar with that, especially if you worked out at the site. And then there's the electromagnetic force. Those are four kind of elemental forces that exist in the universe. These forces are what appear by observation to hold things together in the universe. But those are merely secondary. The reason those things work like they do is because Jesus... The Lord of creation causes them to work that way. Those forces are just a way to describe what God is doing. You know, there's a um, view of God called deism. Has anybody ever heard of deism? Deism is the idea that God created everything. He sort of set it in motion, but then he stepped back. And he kind of let the universe run by itself. But if you study scripture, you'll constantly see deism refuted over and over and over again. Scripture speaks about God actively doing this or that in his universe. He didn't wind it up, you know, like a big clock and then just turn it loose to run apart from his guidance. The universe won't run apart from his guidance. The universe is not autonomous. It's very much dependent on its creator, not only for its existence, but for its continuing to function in the orderly fashion that we can observe it functioning. People, you've probably heard this before, people talk about science being opposed to faith. Are you a faith person or are you a science person? And they picture this thing going on. Like they're opposites. I don't like that dichotomy at all. I think that's a false dichotomy. As a matter of fact, science is only possible to do if there is an orderly, intelligible universe that can be studied in a repeatable fashion because it is so orderly. And it's like that because Jesus made it like that. And he sustains it to continue like that. So Jesus himself is holding all things together in a way that if he were to step away, so to speak, the very atoms that make up everything would fly apart. We we would cease to exist. He is the one that holds our bodies together at this very moment. He's the one who's holding the planets in their orbits at this very moment, holding the stars in their places. Is this the Jesus that you know? Because this is the Jesus of Scripture. Let your heart be filled with awe of him this morning. That's my goal. Another aspect of this uh, lordship over creation is this. Not only did he create the universe, not only is he upholding the universe, but the natural outflow of that is this. Jesus controls everything. He controls everything. Since he created everything from nothing and he sustains it from second to second, literally, It follows that he also controls it all as well. And we don't have to guess about that or or take that view because it's some logical conclusion. Merely, Scripture is clear on that as well. Ephesians 1 says that he is working all things. It's not just talking about spiritual things. It's talking about physical things. All things. Not some things or most things. All things according to the counsel of his will. That includes everything in nature. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3.
And we could take hours of time and look at passage after passage that demonstrates the fact that God controls everything in his creation. There is nothing outside of his control. R.C. Sproul, uh, he used to talk about the fact that there are no maverick molecules in this universe. That's what he liked to call them. In other words, there's no molecules, not even one molecule in this entire universe that is sort of just doing its own thing or is being controlled by something else. God is in control of every last one of them. And that is, as it turns out, immensely comforting to us. Because it grounds all of the promises of God quite firmly. In fact, R.C. said it this way. He stated it in the, in the negative in this quote I have here. He said, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then ladies and gentlemen, there is not the slightest confidence that you can have that any of the promises of God that he has ever made about the future will come to pass. Control over his universe is part of God's godness, if you will. He's the king. He governs all things. He has the right to and he has the power to. That's his sovereignty. That's part of being God. How about a, uh, how about a simple nature-related example, since we're on that subject, seeing what Jesus just did to that storm? Psalm 147, verse 8, talks about how God makes the grass grow. He makes the grass grow on the hills, it says. But wait a second, says the naturalist. We know how grass grows. God doesn't really enter the equation. We know that grass grows by a process called what? Any kids know? Starts with a P? Or any adults remember from school? Photosynthesis, right? There's sunlight, there's water. In other words, there's this whole scientific process that causes plants to grow. And this is where the naturalist doesn't actually take into account the limits of science and the limits of physical observation. The worldview that he has would prevent him from acknowledging anything beyond the reality of the physical world, right? Science can describe physical things and we can put technical names on certain processes that we see in nature, but that doesn't mean that science has taken God out of the equation, not even close. Just because we can name this process or that process like photosynthesis and just because we can explain it somewhat in physical terms as far as what's happening down at the cellular level that doesn't mean science can even come close to answering some of the more ultimate questions. Like, okay, but why does it work like that? How did it come to be that this process is so regular and ordered and predictable? How did that come to be? John Piper has written a 700-page book on God's providence. And he has about 150 pages in that book of scriptures and explanation of those scriptures about how God governs and controls nature through his wise providence, he calls it. And at one point he says this about photosynthesis, what we just mentioned. He's talking about how the modern world has tried to rob God of his glory. Listen to this quote. You can read it along with me. It says, It is a tragic fact of the modern world that most contemporary, scientifically-minded people 
think it is more true and significant to speak of the technicalities of photosynthesis than to say, God makes the grass grow. This is not just a sentence for children. It is a sentence, a reality, desperately needed by the soul-shrunken modern man whose world has been reduced from a theater of wonders to a machine running mindlessly on mechanical laws. Of course, a God-entranced Christian may happily go about his scientific work on photosynthesis and put technical names on the ways of God. But woe to us if we follow the secular spirit of the age into a frame of mind where God is out of sight, out of mind, and out of our everyday conversation about the wonders of growing grass. <laughs> God is in control of nature. And the fact that we can put technical names on all the processes that God has ingeniously come up with doesn't change the fact that it's Him causing it to work like that all along. And when we don't think that way, not only do we rob ourselves of true knowledge about actually what's going on in this theater of wonders, as Piper called it, but we also rob God of the glory that he's due. How about another example of God's control of nature? How about ones having to do with exactly the same thing that Jesus is doing in Mark 4? Does God have control over the wind and the rain, and the waves, and the storms. Listen to this. Psalm 89.9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or how about Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30. Listen to this. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Can you see them there on the boat? Then they cried to the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Wow. You can read over and over again in Scripture that God has control over everything, including the sea and the wind and the storms and so forth. And when you read about these things, almost always it's referring to Yahweh. This all-caps Lord that we just mentioned, the I Am, the only true and living God there is. And yet, what does Jesus do in Mark four thirty-nine? He calms a raging storm. Wait, I thought only Yahweh does that type of thing. And yet here, Jesus does what only Yahweh can do. What does that tell us? Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And I think the disciples in the boat that night, they got it at least a partial realization of that even if they didn't fully understand it at that time because it says that when that happened they were even more afraid after Jesus calmed the storm they were terrified for their lives when the boat was reeling about and they thought they were going down but then Jesus calms the storm and it says in verse 41 that they were filled with great fear Michael Card, one of my favorite artists, he has a song about this called A Great Wind, A Great Calm, A Great Fear. I think it captures the scene very well. That's exactly how Mark puts it, by the way. A great wind, verse 37, a great calm, 
verse 39, a great fear, verse 41. And I love how he poetically captures what's going on. Listen to one part of this. Picture it in your mind. He has a way of painting with his words here. A hand outstretched against the gale. A voice that stills the tempest roar. As muzzled, death is silenced there by he who calms the storm. A great wind, a great calm, a great fear. An unspeakable power is here. Far beyond the darkness and the waves, there is a very real reason to be afraid. When they saw what Jesus did in that boat, it defied all of their mental categories. They didn't have a category they could put this person in, and it terrified them. Here's a man who can speak to the wind, and it listens. Who is this person? I'm in the boat with God. What a thought. Again, is this the Jesus that you know? Surely a Jesus who is just a good moral teacher is not worthy of our devotion or worship. He might be worth listening to and getting some tips. But this man that we read about in the gospel is no mere moral teacher. The wind doesn't listen to moral teachers. The wind listens to God alone. Again, this should elicit praise and awe in our hearts. And uh, as we see Jesus in the boat with these fearful men, we see this principle demonstrated as well, that if Jesus is with us, we are safe. There is nothing to fear if we have him. And that's the essence of the question he asked to them Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Verse 40. He's not saying that the wind and the waves and and dying aren't scary things in themselves. He's saying, if you have me with you, why are you afraid? Haven't you figured out by now that if you're with me, you are safe? And any person that comes to Christ is safe in that same way. In fact, we are safe in an eternal sense. He promised that he'll never leave us. He tells us that he's for us. We are his. Romans talks about if God is for us, well, then who can be against us? The psalmist said this too. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is is our fortress. Is he your fortress this morning? That's the question. This Jesus who stills storms and who cares for his people and who brings his people safely all the way to the shore, is he your Lord? He can be if you repent of your sins. And you call on him for mercy, he'll save you, he'll forgive you, he'll be your refuge. Let me close with this. Amy Carmichael, who's a missionary to India for 55 years, she served in the late 1800s and first half of the 1900s, she wrote this, reflecting on this passage. Thou art the Lord who slept upon the pillow. Thou art the Lord who soothed the furious sea. What matter beating wind and tossing billow? 
If only we are in the boat with thee. What a good reminder. The Lord is with his people. He's going to bring us all the way to the desired haven. And uh, as demonstrated by the stilling of this storm, Jesus is Yahweh, God himself in the flesh. And every person who trusts in him is safe. And at the end of the age, when a different kind of storm falls on all of mankind, the storm of God's wrath on unrepentant sinners and people who rejected Christ, when that happens and that storm is whipping in full strength, all those who are in the boat with Jesus will be delivered securely and safely because he's because of what he's done to abate God's wrath against us. The Lord of nature has become our salvation. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are in awe over the, the glory, the power, and the majesty of your Son. He is the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature. We see him here speaking to the wind and it obeys. Lord, let us not foolishly fear anything that nature might do to us or that man might do to us so long as we have our Savior by our side. Thank you for recording this event in Scripture for us to think about and consider. And I pray, Lord, that you will cause it to elevate our view of Jesus as the King of the kingdom, as the Lord of all. May our praises rise higher and may our zeal burn hotter as a result of thinking on these things. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Amen.